Hi, I'm Joseph McClendon III, and welcome to the Cure for the Common Life podcast. Listen, you know as well as I do that motivation, empowerment, and inspirational stories, they're all well and good, but that's not what keeps us going. That's not what's going to change your life, and that's not what's going to move the needle in your health, your wealth, your happiness, your abundance, or your ability to be able to help other people and make a difference. What keeps us going, what produces results in our lives is activity, not action, activity. And when you can get yourself past the things that stop you and hold you back, that's when you'll thrive and that's when you'll crush it. And I humbly offer you these tools and strategies to kick your own ass and make the changes so that you can thrive. But most of all, I'm going to give you something every single time that you can do to create a change in yourself. Life is exactly what you dare to make it and fortune favors the bold, baby. So if you're ready, let's bold. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Cure for the Common Life. I'm Joseph McClendon III, and as promised, I always bring you the best of the best of the best to help you go further, faster, and become your best you. And today is absolutely no exception because my esteemed guest, and I really mean esteemed, is definitely a perfect example of that. Reggie Selma is the former legendary photojournalist with CNN, and he has decades and decades of experience, and he's had unparalleled access to to history's most iconic leaders, people like Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama, And and the list goes on and on, trust me. And in 1982, Reggie made history by becoming CNN's first African-American cameraman assigned to the White House. And he's traveled the globe filming U.S. presidents from Ronald Reagan all the way to President Obama. And now, after a long, successful career behind the lens, Reggie has stepped out in front of the camera. And he's gone on to become one of the most inspiring and mesmerizing speakers in the industry. And I speak from experience on that. And I'll give you, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Before I do these shows or before I interview somebody or bring somebody on the show, I always like to get to know them. And I, I met Reggie, it's been just maybe just a couple weeks ago, and he was introduced to me by a dear friend of ours, Wendy. And so I, didn't, I, I knew about him, but I, I had never spoken to him. So I do this little interview with him, and it, usually it's about five or 10 minutes just to kind of get to know the person and get some chemistry going. And uh, we got to talking, and this fascinating man, a half hour later, I woke up <laughs> and I realized, <laughs> and I had to stop him. I go, Reggie, this is too good a stuff just between you and I. So I stopped it and I wanted to pick it up here because I wanted to share with you this glorious, this amazing man. And so it is my pleasure to introduce you to Reggie Selma. Reggie, welcome and thank you so much for sharing your time again with Cure for the Common Life. Joseph. The pleasure is all mine. I feel honored to be on your show and in your presence. You are an amazing spirit. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. Well, let's jump in because I want to get on to, and, and at the very least, this man is an amazing storyteller uh, at the very least. But before we get into anything at all, share with us a little bit about uh, maybe a young Reggie Miller or, or Reggie Summer or where this, where this came from. I know you say you're PK, a preacher's son, but tell me a little bit about you know, your history, where you come from. Well, I was raised in Birmingham, Alabama, in a very supportive and uh, loving uh, household. My mom and my dad and uh, my two brothers and my sister and I. And the community was very tight as well. Uh, The phrase, it takes a village, I think was invented in our neighborhood. Everybody took care of each other. 
And uh, as I said, I was uh, born in, in Alabama and I, it was during the, the civil rights uh, yeah. movement. I call myself a, a civil rights kid in the uh, growing up in Birmingham, segregated Birmingham, where uh, we had white and colored signs everywhere. Uh, the uh, racist uh, policies of the local government and throughout the South tried to uh, keep African-Americans down to constantly show us we were not full citizens. But when you come from a, a loving place, a loving household uh, with great parents, uh, you don't buy that. You don't let anybody tell you you are yeah. inferior yeah. Uh, to them. And uh, that's what my, my parents uh, always instilled in us. And uh, my neighborhood was, was rocked with one of the nation's most uh, tragic occurrences, uh, the four little girls, the 16th yes. Street yes. Church bombing. Uh, one of uh, our little playmates, uh, Denise McNair, was killed in that oh, so you were uh, tragic. Wow. wow. The McNairs lived a block from our house. And uh, just imagine uh, being a child and your parents call you into the living room one day and they, they tell you that uh, one of the neighborhood kids has been killed. And your mind just races. I, I was only in the first grade, but uh, just hearing that and the way they told us she was uh, killed in a church, and I grew up in the church by a bombing by the Ku Klux Klan, a domestic terrorist group, um, took away a, a lot of my childhood, but uh, my, my parents always told us they would take care of us. Don't worry, we will protect you. Mm. And um, so my childhood was a happy one, but it also was was tinged by uh, uh, tragedy that went around the world. People knew about the bombing of the four little girls. No doubt, yeah. Now, first off, that that is, I mean, I can't even imagine that because at that age, I was still trying to figure out why I was eating dirt and paste. Um, but, um, you know, I've heard so many things. My father, you know, you, we talked about this before. My father was was uh, an activist back in those days as well. And um, they, the same thing, they would sit us down and go, here's what's going on. But that doesn't mean that you are a bad person or you're any less, you still hold your head high and you still go through that. You shared with me just a little while ago, uh, you said, you know, obviously coming from a, you know, a loving background, uh, that your father being a preacher, he had a specific way of raising you instead of, you know, just being okay, you know, God fearing and all those things you shared with us. He had a philosophy about that. My, my dad uh, was a great uh, f father. In fact, he was my best friend. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time with my dad and he was a minister and he never, you know, hit us over the head with it. We could go to a party and it was always funny when some of my uh, classmates would see me at a party being a preacher's kid and they would always say, wait a minute, what are you doing here? You, you can't be here, you, you're, you're a preacher's, preacher's kid. And my dad had a philosophy, he's quoting the Bible, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And to him that meant you can have a good time and still nice. be a good person too. Nice. And uh, yeah, and you asked me about uh, my, uh, where did I perhaps get this from? I was, I can remember vividly being 10 years old and uh, like most kids, they emulate their dads, their moms. And my dad was a pre preacher, so uh, I would get, perhaps on a Saturday, all my neighborhood friends, about 10 of us, and I would get my father's Bible, and I'd get the, the little table that my mom would have the telephone on and, a, and the uh, phone book, you know, people don't know what phone books are now, and I'd take it, 
and I take it outside and I would just start preaching. You know, I'm just a little kid. I'm just reading mm -hmm. from the Bible. But uh, I'm, I'm telling the kids and do your homework and listen to your parents. <laughs> and uh, I always remember uh, one of our neighbors, Mrs. Patterson, uh, next door, she would always make it uh, her chore to sit on her front porch anytime I, I would quote unquote preach. So I think I've always had the calling to, to inspire people, uh, perhaps at an early age, I was just, you know, having fun, but um, I, I think I've always had a mission to, you know, share what I know to other people. And if it could help you, we can call that inspiration. Nice, nice. And you know, what's so great, and, and by the way, uh, you know, anybody that's familiar with this show, I always do my best to kind of dissect what somebody says so that it's useful for them in a way and things that they can do. And there are a lot of people out there, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, better than 50% of the people that, that would be listening now, better than 50% of the world right now is raised in a family without parents that are, are together. And uh, to add to that, are parents that, that are children themselves and don't know and have not got the lessons and, and the background that your father did. I was fortunate that I had great loving parents as well. But what would you say to, to people who didn't have that uh, aspect in their lives? And here they are right now. Because uh, let me qualify that. You, um, you started at a very young age. You say it was your calling, but you had some inspiration and an influence to do that. And a lot of people that I speak to now go, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what I, uh, I should be doing right now. You know, they may be burned out on their job or something like that. What would you say to people that have those kinds of questions that have not the background that you do, didn't come from a loving family or that kind of thing? I would just say, search your own heart and, and soul. Mm -hmm. uh, we found, especially during this pandemic, we've had all of this quiet time to ourselves and the world is slowly opening up America. Uh, with the vaccines, but for a year, we were just alone in our thoughts. And I would say to people, go back to, to that part of, of, of this pandemic where you were just thinking, if it, if it takes reinventing yourself, mm. uh, something that perhaps you don't feel comfortable doing, uh, talk to other people. You know, there's so many uh, ways to connect with people nowadays with technology. You don't have to uh, physically be in the room. Uh, not that you have to read the Bible, but seek other counsel from other people. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a way to find your purpose. You know, you're not here, as my mother would say, just taking up space. You're here for a reason. And, and, and you find that reason uh, within your own heart. People know when something affects them, be it uh, the first time you fell in love, the first time you knew that job was for you or that city was for you, that same feeling will, will translate into your, your purpose. You know, you just have to just uh, seek counsel from people that are wiser than you, that look different from you. That's the, that's the thing people have to learn. If you're just talking to the same people all the time, you're going to get the same result. So there are people that perhaps you wouldn't even uh, think of connecting with they might have an answer for you. It might come in a conversation at, at the, the local super, supermarket. You know, I've had some of my best conversations uh, loading up my groceries in, in a parking lot uh, of a supermarket. People just look like they have something extra they want to share with you. And instead of just blowing them off, listen to them, because you never know where that inspiration is going to come from. Nice, nicely done because, and I agree with you 1000%, especially the part about people who don't look like you or maybe even think like you. And the, the 
not the antithesis, but the other side of that is sometimes people are intimidated to seek friendships, interactions, and connections with people that are doing better than them. In other words, yes. they, there's a little bit of, you know, and sometimes, quite honestly, it's a little bit of envy, you know, and they will look, I, I, I am almost ashamed to say this, but when I was younger, I went through you know, a very difficult period of my life, and I would look at people that were successful, had money, and were happy, and all those things, and I would resent them. And I would think to them to myself, well, it's because you're white or because you have this privilege or because you're that and so on and so forth. And even though some of those things were true, as my father used to always say, that's none of your business. That is mm. none of your business. Your business is to look for the best, seek the best. And, and he used to always say, as ye seek, so shall ye find. And as ye seek, so shall it find you. Mm -hmm. will come out of the woodworks to to help because there are good people out there as well and so so reggie I, i'm excited to hear you know one of your um one of your many, your many talents is inspiring people through your stories and i know that you know when we spoke last time you were telling me some things about you know your travels abroad and everything maybe share with us a couple of stories because i know you've been around some amazing people amazing people, some of them, my mentors and teachers and everything. Maybe share with us a story of, uh, along the way that you've uh, had the opportunity of being around somebody that is, uh, let's just say, uh, one of the greats. I tell you, I, I feel so privileged uh, in my, my career as a photojournalist, uh, 32 years at CNN in Washington, nice. DC. I started at uh, local news in my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, the local NBC affiliate there, WVTM. So my whole life has just been uh, uh, around people that uh, have inspired me. And one of the most inspiring figures, one of the most iconic figures of the 20th century, uh, Nelson Mandela. Nice. And this is shortly after Mr. Mandela had been released mm -hmm. from prison in South Africa. And as I tell people, just imagine uh, 27 years in prison for your beliefs. They always wanted him to renounce his beliefs. Yeah. Just imagine if the, the jailers, the, the corrupt uh, South African, then corrupt uh, apartheid South African government, they're coming to you, say on year one, two or three, and they will release you if you renounce this silly idea of freedom for all black people, okay? That's how they would uh, approach him. And he said, no. And he said, no, for 27 years. So uh, world protests, uh, other world leaders, uh, the people in South Africa, it was just time for this freedom to take place. And they released Nelson Mandela and he is doing a tour of America. And one of my best assignments ever was to film uh, part of that tour in Washington, DC. Of course, he's coming to the nation's capital. Yeah. And the very first one, he gave this intimate speech at the uh, Library of Congress. Next door is the Supreme Court. Across the street is the U.S. Capitol, this, this hallowed ground. And the space was, was beautiful because uh, this is where some of America's most prestigious documents are. The Constitution, yeah. mm -hmm. the Gettysburg Address. So I'm filming this and I'm just sitting here just pinching myself and uh, I'm hanging on this every word. And then the very next day was the best assignment of all. Nelson Mandela was going to speak at the South African Embassy in Washington, D.C. And this was the embassy that for years in the 80s, uh, I would go, I think every Friday there was a protest uh, demanding his release from prison. 
everyday people, celebrities would come. And now this uh, press conference that uh, Nelson Mandela is going to give is inside the walls of this South African embassy and a feat within itself. So uh, the night before I knew my assignment, it was gonna be this small uh, press conference. Mr. Mandela would sit behind a table and we would put our tabletop mics on him. And I was gonna be no more than three feet away from this great man, uh, less than social distancing what we do now. <laughs> and, and the press was supposed to be uh, very uh, nonpartisan and, and uh, impartial and professional, which we, we are. I was always uh, very dedicated to my craft in a very professional way. Uh, but I'm getting ready to film Nelson Mandela. That's gonna go out the window. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So the night before, I'm telling you, the night before I go to a drugstore and I get the Time magazine that he is on the cover of. And I go to an arts and craft store and I buy a, a magic marker with the white ink. My goal after I do a very professional job of filming him is to ask Nelson Mandela if he would sign nice. this magazine. So the day comes, I film it, I get great position. Uh, and I'm filming him and it's, it's great. And it's about 45 minutes. And then he uh, says that was the last question or one of his aides says the last question and he rises and uh, I do, I pull my camera back on a wide shot. I stand to get it. And uh, so I can stand and get him uh, about to exit. So here's my plan. I go in my equipment box. I pull out my Time Magazine and I say, Mr. Mandela, would you honor me by autographing this magazine with your picture on it. And he takes a couple of steps towards me and he's about to extend his hand and take my marker. And all of a sudden this young woman, PR woman says, no, he doesn't have time to, to sign any autographs. We have a tight schedule. He's going here, he's going there, he's going everywhere. He, he can't do that. So Nelson Mandela turns to me and he says, young man, I am so sorry. I would love to sign your book but she is the boss. Whatever she says goes. And I'm looking at him like, but you're Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you're the boss up in here. <laughs> and I looked at this young woman and uh, she couldn't have been more than 30, 35 years old. And if looks could kill, I was throwing daggers away. <laughs> and of course he went on his way and, and it was all over. And I was like, darn it. But as I thought about this story as the years progressed, and I thought about this, this young woman, she was doing her job. Yeah, yeah. Just imagine, and I was imagining the, the PR company that, that was in charge of Mr. Mandela's schedule. Just imagine this woman being in this conference room and she is saying, whatever she's saying, everybody wants this account, right? But she has a story that I will guide Mr. Mandela through the nation's capital, and I will make sure he makes all his appointed rounds. And this young woman was given that assignment. And then I thought for her to tell Nelson Mandela, no, who does that? Yeah. This woman said, no, you do not have time. And going back to Nelson Mandela, he gave this woman her proper respect. And this is in front of a, a international press corps. It was not only American press corps, but the South African press corps that followed him. And I'm sure a lot of European uh, networks as well. And he honored her position. He could easily said, no, I, I'm Nelson Mandela. I can do what I want to do. But he honored her in such a way that 
that part of the story is, is to me as important as me having, and I tell people I had a 30 second conversation with Nelson Mandela, but for him to honor her in this way, I, I don't know her, I don't know her name, but I'm sure that boosted her into a career of, of greatness. Well, first off, brilliant. And there's so much to unpack there that I want everybody to be real clear of. First, um, the magnificent person you are, because the only person you left out of that, uh, the, the synopsis in the end was you. And what I mean by that is the man that you are to ask different questions, come to different conclusions and sum it all up in a way that you just did is it's counterintuitive to human nature. I say human conditioned nature. Human conditioned nature would be to be so angry at that woman for all of the reasons that you said that you were you admired her, to be so angry at her, to deny you, and it, this was just just one thing and 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 all of these things. And but for you to say she's doing her job, and and to wish well for her. And to assume well for her that in that moment, because she was given those those um, uh, uh, that attention by this great man, her career may have. I mean, that's the way that a great man thinks. And so, mm -hmm. you know, kudos to you for that. And I hope everybody gets that example that when crisis happens or when unfortunate things happen and undesirable things happen, step back for a second. And I'm not saying maybe you, maybe you didn't think that immediately. But either way, step back for a second and go, okay, here's what it is. And let's, let's make it mean something different because now you still, you, maybe you didn't come away with a signed copy, but you came away with a story that look at what, it's, what it has done for your life. And that yes. example that you set for other people as well. So my hat is off to you for that. And, um, you know, that brush with greatness, if you will, um, is, has done something and fortified the person that you are and the example that you're setting. So I think that is spectacular. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, and I know, uh, you know, this is not, uh, as I said before, you know, you've stepped out from behind the camera and you're, you're, in, uh, you're in front of the camera right now and you're doing so many things uh, for people around. And I know you, you have uh, different things that you do right now. And of course, we're not near close to the end yet, but before we, we do, I want you to share with everybody. I know, you know how, and I'll ask this again in the end and you also, everybody listening, you'll see this in, uh, the description um, uh, that, that accompanies this podcast, but share with us some of the things you're doing right now to spread what you do and, uh, and you're inspiring other people. Well, I am in the midst of launching a podcast. My uh, podcast is An Inspired Life, nice. Motivational and Inspirational Stories. And we're not live yet on iTunes any day now, uh, as uh, I, I hear, but if you go to my website and inspiredlifepodcast.com, pre-subscribe, and once you do that, you will get an alert as to uh, when my show hits iTunes live. Spectacular. And, yeah. And no, I was just going to say, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Joseph. No, no, I was going to say we will, we will revisit that a little bit later, but go on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, I was uh, doing really well uh, with my motivational speaking in person. Uh, I was blessed of the last in-person speech I gave was in Dublin, Ireland, a beautiful country, beautiful people. And then pa the pandemic hit. Mm. And uh, as we were saying about finding your inspiration, um, 
you have to come up with something, as I say, other than baking banana bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the pandemic. Yeah, that became yeah, a yeah. thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, this this podcast uh, idea just kind of came to me. And once something happens like that, positive people enter your life. Uh, Wendy Stevens is this amazing spirit uh, who is uh, producing my podcast. We just kind of found each other. I still can't really remember how it happened. So when you surround yourself in in goodness, when you surround yourself in positive energy, it kind of finds you. And uh, so with my podcast, we've all been tested like we've never been tested before uh, with this pandemic. And there are a lot of people that are hurting, both physically and mentally, emotionally. People have lost their homes, their families. And uh, I've always had this gift, or so I've been told, throughout my life, ever since I was a child, to uh, inspire people, to my words have a way of soothing them. So if I can't do it in person as of now, I thought this podcast would be a great idea to reach people in their homes, when they're jogging, when they're doing whatever. And it's a way to extend my message to people. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on each other. We're going to get through this. We never thought we would have to do the things that we've done during this pandemic to survive, but we have. Mm-hmm. We have. And here we are. We've given up hugging loved ones. We, we wear a cloth on our face, but we did it because we want to keep living. We want to keep growing. We want to keep this world alive. So uh, I'm using my voice, my gift, and my podcast, uh, and hopefully people get that out of it. Nice, nice. And you know, what you said, it, it finds you. It does. You know, like I said, my dad always said, as you seek, so shall you find, and it will find you as well. And, you know, you hit on something, and a lot of people, like you said, we've gone through a year plus now, a year plus <laughs> of this fear. And from a purely physical standpoint, you know, when we stress about something, whenever there's a, a crisis that shows up, the natural response is to go into what we call our sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. And what comes along with that and what makes us do that are are chemicals that get released from our our brain and from our uh, glands. And one of those chemicals is called cortisol. And cortisol is, is, like I said, the fight or flight. It is designed to dump adrenaline into your system, which is an acid, which gets you on alert and keeps you, you know, on the edge of the seat so that you can save yourself, if you will. Well, you know, I always look at it like this, that in the, uh, you know, in the caveman days, the tiger shows up, saber-toothed tiger shows up, we go into fight or flight, adrenaline comes out, we fight the thing or we run away. If we live to, to, to see another day, then that is conditioned into us. And that cortisol does not show up again until we sense or smell or see the tiger again but the tiger goes away. If we don't live, the tiger still goes away because <laughs> you know, you're dead. But here's my point, is that in modern day, stress doesn't go away. The tiger doesn't go away. And so that cortisol continues to be released in smaller doses. And so for a year's time, is no, it is no secret that mankind in general around the world has been, let's just say, in their sympathetic nervous system and cortisol release. And people have found ways of, of releasing that by 
let's just say some not so healthy things, uh, drinking alcohol and, you know, alcohol consumption has gone up. Uh, so has Netflix and things like that to take us off, mm. you know, away. Uh, but that cortisol still gets released. And so one of the things that I'm so inspired by what you do is giving people a, another option, you know, through your stories, through your inspiration, through your examples and through your teachings. And, and quite honestly, the example of the person that you are, Reggie, uh, people get to go, ah. And as soon as we do that, then it creates another chemical release called dopamine. And so yes. um, you are what I call a ambassador of dopamine in people's lives. And I accept that title. I love it. You got to have it now because I, I just bestowed you with this. With it. Uh, share with us another uh, great person that you interacted with. Barack Obama. No. America's first black president. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, this was then Senator Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. But uh, we knew as, as members of the press in Washington, D.C., as, as everybody did, that he was only going to be a senator for so long. He was the chosen one. <laughs> and we all assumed, and I'll never forget, it was a hearing that he was a part of. And uh, then uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice uh, was uh, set to... Uh, testify on whatever subject matter. And this is when, you know, there was a bit more bipartisanship on Capitol Hill as they, we don't see that as much now. And he came in late, Senator Obama came in uh, late, you know, as all do, he's running around as all the senators uh, have various meetings and they get there uh, right before the, the, uh, the person that's testifying speaks. And once she saw him, she made a beeline to go and shake his hand. And I never seen that before. Usually when the, a person is set to testify before Congress, they're seated, they're testing their mic, they're making sure all their notes are there and drinking a glass of water. Uh, but when he entered the room, uh, the Republican uh, Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, got up and went over to him and shook his hand. I just kind of filed that. So uh, this is a story uh, when Senator Barack Obama is giving a speech at the National Press Club, right around the corner from the White House. How apropos. And we all went to cover this, uh, this man, this senator, uh, as if he was going to announce he was running for president that day. It was kind of like the presidential announcement watch. We did this for about a month. He eventually uh, gave this beautiful production in his home state of Illinois uh, that, uh, you know, was befitting the honor. But we had convinced ourselves everywhere he went, he was going to say, I'm running for president of the United States <laughs> in a very impromptu way. So I'm covering uh, the speech and it was a, a classic Barack Obama speech, very inspirational and uplifting and, and I'm filming it and I have great position and it's all good and eventually it's over and he exits stage left. And uh, I start to break down my equipment as other camera crews are doing the same thing. And I put all my gear away. And here's a little, little tidbit. If you are a camera crew and all the camera crews in Washington know this, if you're doing an event at the National Press Club in the ballroom, you take the freight elevator down through the kitchen and it takes you right down, no stopping. Instead of taking the local elevators and you stop you know, five or six times before you uh, get to the first floor. So uh, I'm wheeling my cart of equipment uh, to the freight elevator and I'm on and I'm just about to press one for the first floor. And all of a sudden I hear that unmistakable voice. Uh, excuse me, uh, young man, can you hold that door? <laughs> 
And I turn around and it's Barack Obama. So of course he put my leg, put my arm. I am not gonna let that door close, okay? So he gets on with his staff. As I said, he's, he's Senator Barack Obama and it's uh, two or three members of his uh, senatorial staff. And he says, thank you for holding that door. And I said, oh, the, the pleasure is all mine. And obviously he sees I'm a camera crew because he's seeing my gear. And he asks, did I cover his speech? And I said, yes, I did. And he says, well, how did you think I did? And I look at him and I'm thinking this man will go down in history as one of the world's greatest speakers. And he's asking me right. how he did. And he was not kidding, he was sincere. Humility, right? So you know how you're supposed to have that uh, 30 second elevator speech if you meet yeah, that yeah. person on the elevator. <laughs> well, all I could think of was, I think you did great. <laughs> he laughed and his staff laughed and he said, well, when you get back to CNN, you tell your boss that I said to give you a raise. And then we all laughed. And, oh, wow. And, and, and it was funny. And then eventually the, the elevator, the freight elevator through the kitchen, it gets to the first floor and we all depart. And as I say, he walked off of that elevator and into the history books mm. because I was honored to cover. I did both uh, inaugurations, but it was something very special about the first one. And I was honored to film uh, Barack Obama's first uh, presidential inauguration being sworn in, uh, 20 degrees, but I didn't care. Yeah. And as I'm, as I'm standing there about to film him, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of my mom and dad and all the sacrifices they made mm -hmm. and my grandparents, you know, mm -hmm. having to, to fight segregation. Here I am, they're, they're baby boys, my mom used to call me, and I'm about to film America's first uh, Black president. And as there's a the tradition- first as the first African-American cameraman assigned to the White House. You know, I didn't think of that, brother. Thank you for that. Well, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless you. And there is a tradition, once the president is sworn in, uh, they set off a round of cannons, you know, mm -hmm. ceremonial cannons. And as I tell people, once he was sworn in, I don't know which was louder, those cannons or my heart beating, because oh, I was yeah. just so proud. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you know, a, a couple things again, I like to unpack. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, I never got to meet the man. I haven't met him yet. I look forward to it. It is on one of my bucket list things. I admire him and, and love him or hate him. He, he, he has it. And yes. my experience with him is, and I like to, again, I want to unpack this so people, people don't have to have to feel like it is something that they're born with because everybody's born kind of the same. Yeah, you may be predisposed to be a better basketball player because you're, you know, you've got six foot nine genes in you. Uh, however, there are a lot of six foot nine people out there that don't play basketball. So it's what happens in between there that makes you the person that you are. And um, I remember seeing him probably uh, in, oh gosh, oh two uh, as a Senator. And I saw, or whatever he was at the time, and I mm -hmm. saw a speech that he was giving just, just, you know, and just, I don't even know what he was, uh, what he was talking or what he was talking for. But I remember thinking this man has it. And this man could be the first black president. This could, mm -hmm. and could be president because he has it. And it to me has always meant if you have it, Everybody has it, but here's, here's where it comes through. Here's how you elevate whatever it that you have. And that is what you already said right there. And that is that humility and that caring and that connection for other people. That people, that energetic, um, 
uh, let's just say I'm sending of that that energy or or that caring that connects people to to you and to them. Obviously, he is a gifted speaker, but that gift is the gift that he gave to himself. He practiced that. You know, I remember hearing who was it? My friend Les Brown. Les Brown was telling me he goes, "Did you know?" that um, the I have a dream speech from um, Martin Luther King. He had practiced that for years and years. It, just, it wasn't just something that came out of him. It was a speech that was written for him right then and there. And so right. those two things together are what create it. That rehearsal of your skill, as well as that humility, that caring, that giving, and that loving for other people as well. And you, again, as, as I said before, you're, you're, you have that as well just what you shared with us about with the lady with Nelson Mandela, Mandela, that ability to care about somebody, even in the worst of situations, the worst of circumstances, instead of thinking the worst about them, that is where the it comes from. And yes. um, that, uh, again, it is somebody that I, I don't hope to, but will meet uh, at some point. And uh, yeah, and I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, because we're coming up on, I always try to keep this thing to 20 minutes. And as I said before, we're almost at 40 now. So, so um, a, a couple things. Uh, I want to ask two favors. Uh, one of them is that would you please uh, come back again and share with us more? Uh, I would do that in a heartbeat. Thank fantastic. you so much for asking. Fantastic. And the second thing is, uh, again, would you share with everybody how to reach you, how to stay in touch with you, and how to uh, indulge in, in your greatness, if you will? Thank you. My website is one word an inspired life podcast.com. That is the website you go to to uh, pre subscribe to my uh, podcast and inspired life motivational and inspirational stories. And uh, also my email address rselma1 at aol.com. That's R S E L M A, the numeral one at aol.com. And as I tell people, yes, I'm one of five people in America feel on AOL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there. It's, it's, it's hard to break. It's yeah. just a bad habit. It's a good habit, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, at the onset of this, I said that here's a great man who has been around greatness, who is sharing the greatness as well. And for everybody listening, this is definitely somebody who has had and is having an uncommon life as well. And you cannot do any wrong by listening and allowing yourself to indulge yourself in to, uh, you know, you know, not just listening, but doing some of the things. I know you always, you, with your stories, you always give some examples of what to do as well. So I want to thank you, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for all the good that you do, will continue to do, and for sharing this with my audience as well. And with everybody, remember, you know, this show is designed not just as, as a distraction, especially in these times, but it's an opportunity for you to open your mind, your heart, your soul up so that you can give. The secret to living is, is giving. It truly is. So take what you hear here, share it with other people as well. Like and subscribe and do whatever it takes to uplift somebody else's life as well. Reggie, thank you so much. And everybody, remember that life is exactly what you dare to make it and fortune favors the bold. And the trick to life is do as this man does. Boldly step up, ask for that autograph, you know, do whatever, stick that arm in the elevator, do whatever it takes to seize the moment. Reggie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was my honor and pleasure. Thank you so much, Joseph. You're welcome. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Cure for the Common Life podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. And if you have any questions or comments or any topic ideas you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at josephmcclendon.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you at the top.